Hey, everyone recording? Alright, we are starting in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. I'm Jess Dickey. And before we jump in, uh, last week we did the sequences at the top of the episode, and we got a fair bit of feedback. Not a fair bit. We got some feedback saying, hey, that was much better. You guys should do that more often. Uh, you guys want to do that more often? Yeah, we can do that every time. Excellent. It's also worth pointing out that any lag or latency or whatever people are hearing between us dialoguing, we are... Uh, I was trying to make a funny plug for social distancing, but yes, we're doing the smart thing and recording remotely. So, um, which is yeah. really disappointing. We just got back together and we were like, "Hey, seeing each other in person again after a long break," and now we got to be distant. Pan- yeah. Yeah. Fucking pandemics are very inconvenient. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, shall we jump right into the less wrong posts? I guess that's what we're doing. Sounds good to me feels kind of weird having just going right into this without any sort of warm-up chat, but I guess that's what the last hour was for. <laughs> well, while we're warm-up chatting, I've got a fun anecdote to share. I was talking with my grandma last week, who's you know obviously in a high-risk group for this sort of thing, and was relieved to hear that she is taking all of this like exactly the right level of seriously. Um, she's, she's like, oh yeah, luckily I'm fortunate that I don't have to leave the house at all. Um, my doctors have canceled all their appointments, which sucks because she did have a surgery scheduled for last week that she is now delayed on. But um, she had like a cardiac something checkup and that was canceled. But the doctor personally called, like didn't have like an assistant call. Like, hey, how are you doing? You know, if you're really concerned, we can bring you in. And um, that was all nice. But what I liked most about it was she was saying, oh, yeah, this isn't, you know, this is this is serious, but I'm not the least bit worried. I remember when polio was ravaging the country and we didn't even have the ability to like uh, to, you know, disperse news that well like not even everyone had a radio huh so and she's not a hundred years old she's like in her 80s but she grew up in the middle of nowhere nebraska to where like she didn't have electricity till she was a teenager so like not everyone in her tiny one mile by one mile town had a radio back then oh my god what did she do while she was shut in i don't know if they stayed shut in i don't really like apparently polio did make it to beaver city nebraska uh my uh her mom had it um so did my dad's dad um it was it was around it you know made 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 its way around the country but i'm just amazed it made it to this tiny middle of nowhere town i'm like who even brought it in mm. like in the days before gps how did anyone ever even find this place <laughs> <laughs> they asked the you know someone on the road and it's like you go down yonder take a left at the grain silo that's right <laughs> so yeah people vaccinate your kids prevents plagues of polio from sweeping the country I guess that's not something that's you really right. got to tell rationalists. So, meh. <laughs> yeah, um, we had a, a really thoughtful and, and concerned patron who um, was writing in asking about if we wanted if we wanted them to come on. They're going to come on at some point and talk about community stuff or maybe some coronavirus stuff as well. Um, I'm not sure if they want to go by their real name or not, so I'm not going to name drop. But, uh, like... I feel like we're pretty well informed as a community. I feel like we're a bit ahead of the, like, not to, like, pat ourselves on the back, but, like, we're a bit ahead of the curve as far as, like, you know, sir, or s- s- calling the uh, the panic alarms early and that sort of thing. So um, I wasn't feeling too shy. Yeah. And we're also not anti-science, so we know that vaccinating our kids is a good thing. <laughs> Pandemics are actually to be taken seriously. Yeah. I wonder Talk if that's going to my... gonna actually stop the uh, anti-vaxxers. 
Like, uh, six uh, months from now, they're just going to disappear because of the whole COVID-19 thing? Aren't there a bunch of psychological studies that show that the more, like, people try to argue with logic and facts and evidence against somebody who has an entrenched belief, the more they, like, cling to the entrenched belief? Yeah, but no one's arguing with them right now. It's just, you know, a plague spreading across the nation. Yeah, the, the question is, is in a year, are they going to be line up, lining up for a vaccine or not? Yeah. Or are there are their kids going to be the ones that are barred from going to school because they're still carrying COVID-19? I could easily imagine them being like, the only reason the pandemic got so bad is because so many people are vaccinating and we're not strengthening our natural immune systems the way God intended. Mm-hmm. <sighs> you know, like, you can justify almost anything if you get... It's true. Oh, yeah, if you're if you're a fucking idiot, you can, you can justify anything. Yeah. <laughs> Being isolated for so long has made me grumpy, so everyone <laughs> buckle up. It's a wrong post that kind of, well, uh, is it relevant? It's kind of relevant. And it'll cheer me up from thinking about dumb stuff. So, what's wrong post number one? Hindsight bias. Yes. And hindsight bias, as many people might know, is when people who knew the answer vastly overestimate its predictability or obviousness, the I knew it all along effect, which... Uh, I'm sure everyone can generate examples in their real life of doing this themselves, which is important because people do this shit all the time. Or in talking to people who are like, oh, yeah, I totally saw that coming. Yeah. And it's like, did you, though? Right. W- would you have bet on it? No. You didn't even know about this a year ago or a month ago or whatever. Yeah, this whole uh, post is talking about the thing that I was kind of like ramp- ranting about last week, the pre-registering your hypotheses. Mm-hmm. Um, thing that more scientific studies have been doing lately and people have been more i don't know I'm, I'm happy to see more people being aware of and conscientious of this kind of bias in like the real world outside of just the rational sphere yeah it's nice that we jumped on it 10 years ago but <laughs> i i'll go ahead and read the uh, two of the examples given in the post about what hindsight bias is to make hindsight bias is to make it more uh i don't know concrete for people uh, it says A researcher asked two groups to estimate the probability of flood damage caused by blockage of a city-owned drawbridge. The control group was told only the background information known to the city when it decided not to hire a bridge watcher. The experimental group was given this information plus the fact that a flood had actually occurred. Uh, This came from an actual court case, uh, so this was relevant to something happening in the world. Instructions. What's that? Do you know what a bridge watcher is? I would imagine it's someone who watches a bridge to see if there's blockage. (laughs) It seems like an incredibly boring job, kind of like, what was it, Hemingway had that job where he would just sit in a tower and watch for fires, and so that is where he wrote a lot of his shit, because you have nothing to do but look out a window and see that, yep, forest still isn't burning. Don't exist as much anymore. Like, that would have been great. I used to fantasize about having a job like that, where it's like, I'm hired to basically listen to audiobooks or this is going off topic, but anyway. Well, I mean, also with minimum wage laws, there's no way a job like that could exist nowadays. Like maybe yeah. someone would be worth paying a dollar an hour just to sit and look for fires, but not whatever is the required minimum now. Um, anyways, uh, the experimental group was given the information that the city had, plus the fact that the flood had actually occurred. Instruction stated that the city was negligent if the foreseeable probability of flooding was greater than 10%. 76% of the control group concluded that the flood was so unlikely that no precautions were necessary. 57% of the experimental group concluded that the flood was so likely that failure to take precautions was legally negligent. 
the other example was that after September 11th, the FAA, FAA prohibited box cutters on airplanes, as if that had been the problem. Uh, and the, the general lesson is that the cost of effective uh, caution is very high because you have to attend to problems that are not obvious now as past problems might seem in hindsight. That it's, you know, very expensive to hire a watcher for every single bridge and and every other possible thing that could go wrong with that bridge to, to uh, account for costs a lot of money. So, you know, you take a calculated risk as to whether it's worth it or not. But in hindsight, people are like, oh, they totally should have seen that. It was negligent not to do that one specific thing. Like it was negligent to allow box cutters on planes. How dare they? I remember yeah. being a kid when that was happening. The whole like banning, very, I don't know, the planes just getting insane about what things they were banning, and every time a terrorist used something new, they banned that thing. <laughs> and I remember being a kid Nailed and just it. thinking, like, you know how many other ways you could hijack a plane than like, using a box cutter? Like, I was just, I was sitting on a plane at one point, and I did a thought experiment where I was just doing the thing for methods of rationality, where it was like the, how many ways could you kill the, the other students creatively in this yeah. classroom? I was doing like how many creative ways could I hijack a plane, which I probably should not have been doing. <laughs> well, it was a good okay, idea to think about that stuff. stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm writing it down in a notebook on a plane while I was bored. Oh, <laughs> writing it down is a really stupid idea. On a plane <laughs> is an no even one... worse place to do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Writing it down in your seat. I'm glad no one looked over your shoulder and being like, "What the fuck is going on there?" Well, you were a kid, right? Oh, right. Sorry. I didn't think about that. I remember I after like the uh, shoe bomber incident, and they made people take off their shoes before going on planes, and there was a meme that went around, uh, now the terrorists are going to put under uh, bombs in their underwear, not to blow anything up, just to make a strip before we have to go on planes, and like three months later, a guy was stopped trying to get onto a plane with a bomb in his underwear, and I was like, yeah, haha. Yeah. Yeah. You, you literally yeah, it's great stuff. Yeah. I do like the what, disparity, what though. What we really um, need to do is have everyone strip down naked and only have their glasses and their wand on before they get into a plane. <laughs> yeah, what could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> just hire, just hire Mad Eye Moody with an insane budget and say, "Go totally fucking nuts with security." Yeah. What I like though is the disparity. Just to to refresh on the numbers from the the bridge incident. So. Um, the instructions have stated that the city was negligent if the, if the foreseeable probability of flooding was greater than 10%. 76% of the control group, who hadn't been told that the bridge had flooded, mm-hmm. said, yeah, that's... A, or that... No, that, that flood doesn't sound likely. They took reasonable precautions. Them, right. But then if you say, oh, yeah, and the flood happened, they're like, oh, then they were totally not... Re, they were totally not fair. Yeah. And that that judgment shouldn't come into how likely you think something was to happen. Exactly. It's just... I, I, I think... I can't think of a cleaner example. Yeah. I get this a lot with people who say, man, in hindsight, I really wish I would have done that thing differently or whatever. And I I try to tell them you should not regret things that you made the right decision based on the information you had. Like, sure, if you knew about what was going to be happening in the future, you'd change things. But I would do a lot of things different if I knew the future, I'm sure. it's You go with the information you had. And if you rewind time and you made the right decision based on what you had at the time, don't, you know... I know it's impossible to say don't regret it because you're going to regret things anyway, but at least don't feel like you're a terrible person. Yeah. Yeah, I've done this. uh, I had this fantasy for a long time uh, of being able to go back in time, like jump into my past self's body and make different decisions. But like it stopped being a fun fantasy once I got older and when I was thinking about how far back I would go and like Mm -hmm. how different 
life would be as a result of all the random stuff that it's just like I would just be a different person at this point so there's no point even thinking about this yeah there's only a certain amount you can jump back in time and really have it be worthwhile yeah. I would try and do like quiet things because I like most of my life now um, so I would I would try to do things that would not disrupt my timeline what I would do is just buy like I don't know 50 bitcoin when they're crazy cheap or like you know many many thousands of them when they're crazy crazy cheap and like then that would be the only change I wouldn't tell anybody and then just live out the rest of my life as I did the first time. And then in December of 2017 or whatever, I would sell all of them and become a millionaire. And also not tell anybody. I would go back <laughs> about a year and just really hammered into my head how important it is not to injure your lower back. <laughs> that's, that's the biggest regret I have right now in my life. Yeah, if I had an isolated incident that I could point to, be like, oh, that's when I fucked it up, I would not do that. But I'm not sure what I did to it, so... Um, Anyways, continuing on uh, this, because we're getting distracted again, uh, the test of a model is how much probability it assigns to the observed outcome when you're, you know, testing your models of reality. Hindsight bias systematically distorts this test. That's why you have to write down your predictions in advance, as Jess was saying, and as a lot of people are doing more now. Uh, but as Feischoff put it in 1982, this is a quote from someone, we systematically underestimate the surprises that the past held and holds for us. Subjecting our this subjects our I'm paraphrasing here. This subjects our hypotheses to inordinately weak tests, and presumably we find little reason to change them. So yeah, that's why you should write things down beforehand because as a rationalist, your superpower is noticing your ability to be confused. And if you keep thinking back on the past, it was like, oh yeah, I totally would have predicted that then you never will update your model for uh, how it should be updated when new evidence comes in, because you'll always discount the evidence as in like, oh yeah, my model totally would have predicted that, when, you know, if you write it down beforehand, you can see where it didn't or wouldn't have. And that's how you build a better model. You notice your own mistakes and you become stronger at making predictions. Um, I've said this before, but I still highly recommend that people in the rationalist community make predictions about things, record them, and then check themselves. Uh, even just doing that a little bit has dramatically improved my ability to estimate like how long something is going to take, for example, <laughs> has been one of the most useful things to get better at predicting. Yeah. I had a lot of, um, what is the failure mode where you underestimate how long something is going to take? The planning fallacy? Yeah, I had like, I, I continue to really struggle with planning fallacy related issues. But it was still funny remembering myself going through that period of reading about the planning fallacy, being like, now I know about the planning fallacy. I'll never fall prey to that again. <laughs> nice. What I love about that, and this is one of the things that, um, you know, make it comes out clearer on like a slower read-through uh, plug for We Want More, uh, the podcast I'm doing with Brian Deacon. Um, like, Harry gives this nice long lecture to Hermione on the planning yes. fallacy. And the first thing he does is fallaciously plan the shit out of his, his scientific uh, experimental reg regiment and Hermione just has the shit eating grin and it's like oh we should we should call it Harry bias that's that's way <laughs> above the top and there, uh, even it, even before that this is I, I one of my favorite lines by uh, anonymous who did Hermione Granger's voice was uh, early on when they had the book reading contest 
And Harry was like, oh, I totally got this. This is like almost the very first thing they did. I totally got this. I got a time turner, everything. And then she beats him because some unexpected shit cropped up and he didn't have enough time to read, you know? And so he goes and he gives his excuses. And Hermione's like, aw, looks like someone fell prey to the planning fallacy. And that is not he's how I He's just looking I had... at her with his mouth open and he's like, oh, shit, she's learning. And she slapped me right in the face with one of my favorite words. Yes. <laughs> And that's not how I had read it at all in my head, but when she delivered that line, I was like, oh, that is absolutely perfect. <laughs> I love it. Anon, I actually, like, almost just asked you, oh, yeah, who was anonymous? Probably they're anonymous because they don't want their name to be known. But uh, they did a really great job. Yeah. So they're anonymous because they didn't want to be, like, I don't know, necessarily associated with this, but it was Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> Uh, every now and then, they live not too far out of the city. Every now and then I see them, and if we're ever in the same room at the same time, I will introduce you guys. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. Um, Alright. On to the Value Science. Yeah, let me see if there's anything else I wanted to say about that one. No, let's go on. Okay. Day after day, social scientists go out into the world. Day after day, they discover people's behavior is pretty much what you'd expect. Of course, the expectation is all hindsight. Uh, basically, applying the hindsight bias to the social sciences. And then, um... This is... Yudkowsky writes... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, as an introduction, this next thing that he does is really cool. Yeah. Um... If I might, if I might also interject, I don't think that this was an original Yudkowsky. I had this same thing done to me in high school. Oh, really? By my psych teacher. Yeah, I think this is this is a common way of presenting this information. Ah. Um, and one in the same uh, the same style, but it, it's specifically done in the social sciences. So I'm glad that this is also something that is known a known problem in the social sciences now. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so now we can actually tell people what we're talking about. Yes. Um. There were a list of facts about World War II that social scientists discovered about soldiers. Uh, one being better educated soldiers suffered more adjustment problems than less educated soldiers. And then each one has a little, uh, for, for this one, for example, in intellectuals were less prepared for battle stresses than street smart people. So that's probably why that is. Yeah, so each one, there's like five items. They come with like an observation and then a parenthetical like explanation for what social scientists thought. You want to go through them real fast? Yeah. Yeah, actually, I think we, we, we could probably read all of them. Uh, southern soldiers coped better with the hot South Sea Island climate than northern soldiers because southerners are more accustomed to hot weather. Uh, that was two. Three is white privates were more eager to be promoted to non-commissioned officers than black privates because years of oppression take a toll on achievement motivation. Four is southern blacks preferred southern to northern white officers because southern officers were more experienced and skilled in interacting with blacks. That's awkwardly phrased. <laughs> no, this is an older Five. study. I know. As long as the fighting continued, soldiers were more eager to return home than after the war ended because during the fighting, soldiers knew they were in mortal danger. And I'd like to point out that uh, the historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. dismissed these studies because they were just ponderous demonstrations of common sense. Yeah. So when you read through this list originally, uh, I think they're all intended to be intuitive. Like, yeah. 
And then Yukaski asks, so how many of these findings do you think you could have predicted in advance? Are any of them cases where you would have predicted the opposite? And, like, and then, just as an <laughs> exercise, not a bad idea to pause here and just, you know, maybe consider yeah. that for a second if you haven't read this post yet. And then he drops on us that all of the findings above are actually the opposite of what was found. He switched it up on us. So now, you know, how obvious was what you thought in hindsight? And uh, are you like, oh, snap, I just got owned? Or are you like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense in the places where I was a bit confused. And then at the very end, he says, unless, of course, I actually reported them right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't actually tell us which way is the, the right way, or uh, if some were inverted and some weren't, or whatever. And I'm sure we could look it up ourselves, but I never did. I just took his point as it was meant. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't care enough about the like actual data to go investigate. But this this is a just a good example of like the sort of thing where once in a while it seems like once a week maybe I should be writing these down, um, and then I could bring them to the podcast and people be like, oh, that's actually like a minor use of this sort of thing. Um, well, you get requests somewhat frequently since the show began like four years ago to do stuff on like how do you do rationalist stuff every day. Um, if I do hear something like this, I am capable of saying, wait, that doesn't make sense. Or, oh yeah, I guess I can see that. And then I'll, like, my immediate mental reflex is to say, wait, would I have guessed that in advance? And I'll say, no, probably not. And that means that I actually have no idea about any of this. So I'll just take, you know, if I'm hearing something about, uh, some insane shit that the medical industry does for hospice care for my wife, I'll be like, okay, yeah, since I guess I could have predicted that either way, I'm going to just say that I had no fucking clue. Um, and stick with the fact that I have no clue what I'm talking about and take your word for it, because that's all the evidence I have. It's it's good to, again, actually notice when you're confused, as opposed to saying, oh yeah, I totally would have seen that. Well, in this, it's not even confusion. This is me hearing something and saying, oh, I'm not confused, that makes perfect sense, but wait a minute. Right, but... Does it? And Yeah, exactly. Yeah, should you have been confused, maybe? Right. Yeah. There was that great Slate Star Codex post a couple weeks ago um, that I don't have the name of and I'm not going to dig up right now, but I will put it in the show notes uh, where it's like a kid is asking, like the, the, the teacher is explaining to some child about like germs and the kid asks, well, uh, why don't people just stay home for two weeks and then kill all the germs? And the that, that was such a good post. I actually want to do like an episode about that. Oh, okay, cool. Right, we'll do that. Uh, <laughs> if we don't get uh, Mr. Hoffman on next week, then we'll do that next week instead. Yeah, or at least, like, uh, I don't know, do a longer coverage of that post, because Steve and I remembered the name of it, too, but I know the one you're talking about, and that was something that, uh, a lot of, um, like, Story Codex, a lot of Scott's posts are, like, something that I've kind of had in the back of my mind, like, or a portion of, and I just couldn't articulate it, and then, like, that's what I love about Slate Star Codex is that occasionally Scott will, like, it feels like go into my brain and then read, like, do a really good version of a thing I've been wondering about or had kind of a, like, shitty version of the thing. But, like, it's just like, yeah, that thing. Like, <laughs> read all that next push. Oh, yeah, that thing. Man, he did such a good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This. I just want to run around with my phone, like, with a Slate Star Codex article and just, like, show it to people on the street excitedly going, yeah, this. <laughs> and this is what I was trying to tell you. And they're like, I'm on the street. I got 30 seconds. <laughs> I'm not going to read this oh, whole thing right now. I have 20 minutes to read this yeah. blog post. Or better yet, I'm sorry, I can't read your phone from six feet away. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> or Scott Alexander, isn't he an alt-right incel? <laughs> 
didn't he do a favorable book review of one of Jordan Peterson's books? <laughs> that means he endorses everything that guy ever said, right? That was actually the funniest book review because I feel like it was just kind of a repetition of, man, I fucking hate this guy and this book is irritating and yet I think this is a good point. <laughs> or like, even this is really stupid and, and yet it kind of works. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought I thought it was awesome. Uh, I thought it was a great book review. Um, and, and, and it shows that like you shouldn't necessarily discount uh, uh, at what somebody has to say just because they say one or two objectionable things. Yeah, or if, even if they say ninety percent objectionable things, yeah, like they might they might still have a point to make on some things that are in our domain of expertise, right? Yep. And also, you can write entertaining things even if you are personally a terrible person. Like, I, I have no <laughs> idea if Orson Scott Card is a bad person or a good person or whatever. There's at this point so much misinformation out there. I don't even care to speculate, but I don't have to because the yeah. fiction he writes is good regardless of who he is as a person. I mean, that's the thing is, like, also people aren't good or bad people. Larson Scott Card is a complicated person. Yeah. So, the, he, so I just joined the uh, Doof, um, the Doof uh, Discord recently. Again, I had to have joined it a long time ago when I first started supporting them, but I hadn't, you know, checked it in a long time. Anyways, and uh, not Matt, who's the other Matt? Scott was saying that there's <laughs> been several Kevin Spacey uh, things where he said some great things about Kevin Spacey in them. And, like, now he feels like, should he go back and put an apology or take them down or something? And I'm like, no. No, you shouldn't. Kevin Spacey did an amazing job, and he's a horrible person in the real world, but that doesn't mean that he isn't an amazing actor and did a great job in this movie. Yeah, we saw, I mean... Like, how you feel about his acting does not reflect on how you feel about him as a person or about how you, who you are as a person. And that's one of those tough things where I think it can get muddy, like, um, I don't know. Uh, actually, I just texted Rachel a picture yesterday. It was like, hey, instead of, like, seeing all this COVID-19 stuff, check out this nice painting. And then, like, beneath it is like, congrats, you just enjoyed a painting that was drawn by Hitler. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, like, people get that way about Wagner. Like, that was one of the reasons that the uh, traditional wedding march was changed is because he was kind of a Nazi supporter. And I'm like, the dude's been dead for a long time. He wrote some music that is just music. There aren't even any words to it, right? Some of it may have words, but no one knows what they are. They're in a different language. I don't know. Certainly the wedding march didn't have any words. And I'm like, what is what is your problem? You're not supporting Nazism. You're not supporting him. It's just music at this point. But they're like, no, no. If we play his music, it means that we are secretly Nazi endorsers. I don't know. People, people are weird. People are desperate to read between the lines. People people are really, really love their signaling games and think that it's as important things about them if they like that music. I don't know. Anyways, in hindsight, they should all be shot. Hindsight. <laughs> Bring it back. Would you would you have predicted would you have predicted that in advance, Yash? <laughs> That's the important thing to ask. I feel I would have, because <laughs> I don't know. So the, to wrap up hindsight devaluing science, and we already said the last point here, which was that hindsight will lead us to systematically undervalue the surprisingness of scientific findings, and this unfairly devalues the contribution of the researchers, and worse, it will prevent you from noticing when you are seeing evidence that doesn't fit what you really would have expected. We need to make a conscious effort to be shocked enough. Yeah, uh, I wanted to say a few things about that. Like, the whole... I, I'm really a fan of the idea of learning to be more shocked by things. Um, I think it kind of goes hand in hand with 
kind of learning to be like maybe gratitude exercises. I was thinking about the way that my life improved significantly when I started taking a conscious effort to just like be amazed by stuff. Like I can take a hot shower anytime I want. <laughs> like uh, that is pretty cool. Like life is life is freaking cool. Like looking at a flower growing out of cement sometimes is just like I just want to let my mind continue to be blown by things that are that people don't look at anymore. Yeah. Normally. Um, and the same goes for, yeah, when you learn things. Like, I don't know, I keep thinking of the example of my dad. <laughs> he doesn't listen to this podcast. Uh, just being really, like, anti-science in some ways. Like, more recently, he had called and was complaining about how everybody's just panicking unnecessarily about this stupid pandemic, and it's just cold and it's fine. And I'm just like, I don't know. Amazed at people's ability to think that, the, like, their common sense, like, ideas about the world are just super obvious, but, like, some of them are just random shit that they made up themselves or that they heard from other people. Some of it is stuff they learned in school that was very difficult to discover and not intuitive at all at the time. Yeah. That reminds me on pandemic stuff. I have one more quick note. My sister is due for a second baby in, like, three weeks, and she just pulled her daughter out of daycare later than I think she should have. Um, although if she was going to get sick, she would have by now, but she did it after learning that apparently she was told by the hospital that if she comes in for a delivery and she is presenting with COVID-19 symptoms, they will hold on to her baby for a couple of weeks till she's clear. Huh. Um, and she was like, fuck that. So now she's actually socially distancing and is considering a home birth. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, three of my coworkers at my company are, are pregnant, or at least recent moms or something, and none of them mentioned anything like that. So I'm wondering if maybe that's just this one hospital, or if my sister is misinformed, or had a paranoid person that on the phone that told her that, or what. Um, I don't know. I mean, that might be a good idea. <laughs> well, that's the thing, is it sounds like a good idea. And I, that's, that was my thought. I didn't say that to her, but I did say that to my mom when we were discussing it, because I'm like, oh, yeah, it's super practical. We don't know what the long-term effects are if you catch this as a newborn. Um, obviously, because it's been around for, like, four months, right? So, um, like, she's like, yeah, but it's still terrible. And I'm like, yeah, it's not, like, it's not it's not great. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That said, I wouldn't love to keep my baby in a hospital where everyone in there has fucking coronavirus, right? Yeah. So I'm um, also, based on how much mm -hmm. I know about how nowadays the medical establishment is very much against uh, separating children from or babies from their parents it seems that seems very unlikely to me it seems much more like the paranoid ranting of someone who's like they're taking our babies which you know you hear sometimes uh, i don't know i mean the i might just have a skewed example because my, my hospital is very good but i would feel very safe and comfortable being in that hospital as opposed to being anywhere else aside from you know socially distancing at my own house like, they're doing a very good job at containing it. Yeah. Uh, and they do, as common practice, at least in my cancer clinic, separate children from parents. Because if one of them has uh, cancer and is immunocompromised, then absolutely, like, the, the biggest concern is that person's safety more than, like, like we did have a mom who had to have her be separated from her baby. Oh, sure. And it was sad. It sucked. Everybody was like super depressed about it. Yeah. 
the mom had cancer and babies are little disease vectors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It'd be much worse for that kid to grow up without a mom than to have to be separated for a few weeks while she undergoes chemo uh, or lymphodepleting therapy. Yeah. That sucks. It does, but I mean, sometimes things suck, but they're, like, they're to prevent worse things. Right. Uh, sorry if I kind of went on a tangent about that. It was just something on my mind. No, that was that was the uh, least tang tangential tangent we've had so far today. <laughs> not so sure. About that. I don't even remember what we were talking about. Were we still finishing the last uh, sequence? I, I think we finished. I think we we're just wrapping up. <laughs> we're done. All right. Should we um, jump into today's actual topic then? I I think we should. Cool. Um. Oh, I just nodded, like, because you guys can see me, but the audience can't. So, yes, I, I concur. <laughs> yeah, we're, um, you know, recording remote, and we're on video chat, so we can see each other, but you still can't see us, listeners. So, Jess, we are here to grill you on the details of how to talk to strangers. Chapter one, what's the major point? Go. If I'm not good at talking to strangers by the end of this, then you get a D. No, the thing is, I mean, the book is not about how to talk to strangers. It's, um... Bad title, zero out of ten. <laughs> Sorry, I'm teasing. No, I just I didn't hear what you said. It, I said bad title, zero out of ten. It's a good point, though. The title is somewhat misleading. I don't know. I was drawn to the title. like. Uh, yeah, but did you when um, you were drawn to the title, did you think this would be a treatise about how people talk to strangers, or did you think it would be like how you can get better at talking to strangers? I mean, I thought it was the latter thing, which is a subject of interest of mine. I was actually just about to... So, talk about marketing things and about how authors don't get to pick their own titles and they focus test titles and so it might not have even been Malcolm Gladwell's fault that this was the title of the book ultimately. No, no, I don't blame him, but I'm just saying it is sort of a deceptive title, even though... Yeah, the book is not a here's how to talk to strangers, but it's more specifically about here's the ways that we fail to talk to strangers or here's a bunch of, a bunch of kind of new cognitive biases that... I found to be really interesting. So yeah, that was the name of the site before it turned out to be the real name of the site. <laughs> that was a reference to overcoming bias, where the awesomely nice guy Robin Hanson still blogs. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, I, I I don't mean to dig all that up. No, nobody In knows fact, what we're talking about I, anyway because that was before we started recording. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. So let's not get into it. But um, yeah. Hanson is capable of entertaining some really weird shit, so I'd start with his more, like, uh, user-friendly posts if you've never been there before, but, or better yet, start with his book, um, The Elephant in the Brain. I loved yeah. it. I, 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 like, as far as, like, pop science consumption, like, it was a page-turner. I, I was excited to keep going. I went back and reread parts. Like, it was great. I, I can't, uh, pitch that book hard enough. And we'll post a link in our yeah. show notes. That's right. And well, if you guys can, want to look back, he actually came on the, on, the, on our podcast and talked about it with yes, us. Yes, he did. I don't remember what episode now. I wish I had been on at the time. <laughs> just, just search for Hanson. And we'll link it in the show notes as well. All right. Someone gets to look it up then. Uh, okay. Um, so, yeah, I did like a very kind of rambling discussion of talking to strangers last time. Uh, this time I want to just actually kind of summarize each of the chapters or each of the biases that he brought up. Um, that sounds like exactly what I'm here for, so rock on. Thank you. The first one that he talks about is default to truth, 
where <laughs> he starts this off with um talking about Chamberlain and Hitler. Oh. He uh, it, it went to Germany, <coughs> talked to Hitler before Hitler started uh, World War II, and apparently he says, oh, I've talked to him, and I am convinced that he is trustworthy. There was a bunch of other examples then about uh, Anna Montes, who was a intelligence analyst at the Defense uh, Intelligence Agency, the DIA, who was also a Cuban spy. Hmm. And, again, talking about hindsight, in hindsight, there were a ton of red flags. Uh, she wrote reports that parroted Cuban viewpoints, and she would disappear during crises, and it was just, it would have seemed very obvious in retrospect if you had known, because uh, of hindsight bias. He brought up these examples and then was like, okay, so why did people fail to notice these things? They talk about um, a psychologist who got a bunch of test subjects to watch videos of people who were made to take a test and then either had been given the opportunity to cheat or not cheat. And then they received a, they had somebody um, give them an interview afterwards where they asked a bunch of questions and they said, did you cheat? Did you like think about cheating? Uh, if I ask your partner who also took the test whether or not you cheated, do you think they'd give you the same answer? And some people lied and some fessed up. Uh, some did cheat, some didn't cheat. They showed these videos to a bunch of people and asked them to, like, okay, who's telling the truth, who's lying, and how confident are you? Consistently, these kinds of psychological studies show that people think that most people are telling the truth. So he called this uh, default truth. And basically, we're just really bad at telling when people are lying? Yeah, um, and it seems to be adaptive, which was the point that he goes on to make later, where society would kind of break if people went around being distrustful all the time. There's a chapter talking about what they call in some societies the uh, holy fool, a character who exists in lots of folk tales and stories, and they have a virtue of being outside of society in some way, so they're allowed to be critical of things or notice when people are lying. An example of this they brought up was uh, the emperor's new clothes. Yeah. The, the little child who's like, he's not wearing anything. In some, in a bunch of Russian uh, folk tales, they have like the village idiot is always the one that's like points out some obvious thing that everybody else couldn't talk about. There's an example of uh, everybody uh, being really amazed by this beautiful statue of the Virgin Mary, and then the village idiot coming over and saying, "Can't you see that that's the work of the devil?" And everyone's like, "How could you say such a thing?" And then the Somebody touches the statue and it cracks and reveals like a statue of the devil underneath or something like that. Which what seems like a strange example, but these are the kinds of stories that exist in lots of societies. You know, it's it's interesting because it does I don't know. It's it's individually useful to be paranoid of other people because sometimes people are cheating you, but I've you know, the societies where everyone is constantly thinking everyone else is out to screw them and so they're trying to get theirs first yeah. are really bad. Like, like they brought up uh, the example. Or go ahead. Uh, oh, I'm curious to hear more about that, actually. Oh, it, it's just... you. <sighs> like, what, what, what are you talking about with societies? Or... So, uh, the, the one I'm thinking of is basically any uh, anytime you go to a tourist location outside the U.S., there's often that kind of uh, mentality once you get uh, to kind of like the interstitial areas where 
the the normal people are interacting with the not the normal people the like where you're expected to haggle or do like hard sell not just expected or, or to haggle like, but like yeah. the the people literally assume that Americans are just uh, there to be taken advantage of because they have so much wealth that it's immoral for them to keep any of it and it is the right thing to do to take as much as you can from them but uh i mean we're protected somewhat when uh we go there by the institutions that are there to make sure uh, the tourists keep coming right but uh, some of the experiences my parents had like in egypt and just the even the uh stories i hear from people from other countries where their politics tends to break down because everyone assumes everyone is in it for themselves. And the main thing you do when you get a political position is use it to help advance uh, your interests and your family's fortunes. Because if you don't, someone else will. And really the only people you can trust are your family. So better to make them as well off as possible. And it leads to a lot of social dysfunction. Whereas in like really high trust societies where that kind of thing is viewed as evil instead of just, you know, run-of-the-mill business the way everyone does things, they tend to uh, be much richer and much better at implementing, yeah. you know... People have better qualities of life yeah. in societies that are more, uh, that are higher trust, right. that are able to be higher trust. But every now and then you do get taken advantage of. It was one of the things I liked about being with Melissa. She was very paranoid and I was very trusting, and so we made a good team, where generally I was always <laughs> like, no, let's cooperate with everyone, but every now and then she saved my ass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, that's it's useful to have a holy fool around, yeah. but society can't be composed of them. Like, Gladwell brings up the example of somebody waiting in line at Starbucks. Like, oh, that, that's going to be 5, like, 44, and they, like, whip out their phone. They're like, I'm going to do that calculation myself mm. and hold up the whole thing. And, you know, like, there's certain things that just kind of will grind to a halt if everybody's watching their own ass all the time and questioning everybody's moves, yeah. every move. So... So you can see why it's adaptive, and then also why we do get tricked in these ways that are baffling, unless you understand the psychology. If David Yusuf is listening, he should totally like write in or say something as well, and we'll read it on the next listener feedback, because yeah. I know he's had a lot of experience with Egypt, with him being raised he's there and all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I pulled out this quote that the issue with spies is not that there's something brilliant about them, it's that there's something wrong with the rest of mm. us. <laughs> Where... Uh, and, yeah, the one more example was uh, this person, Harry Markopoulos, who was the independent fraud investigator who um, wasn't fooled by Bernie Madoff uh, defrauding thousands of investors, like getting $60 billion and then making, like, really transparent lies about them. Everybody else assumed that, like, well, obviously somebody else is watching out for fraud on that scale. And, you know, and Madoff doesn't look like a liar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And this guy was just, Harry, like, was like, obviously he's, like, embezzling money. And he warned the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, in 2000, and then 2001, and 2005, and 2007, and 2008, each time that we listened yeah. to him. One thing I would say, was, definitely, if you're if you're ever having anything seriously major done to your body, or there's a big financial decision, Google it first. Like, never, ever go in for a <laughs> surgery without first Googling. Get, find your paranoid friend. Yes. <laughs> Get to review it. I need to figure out who that is in my social circle. I, I know it's not me. I tend to be easily fooled. 
I know that I am, though. Like, the thing that I thought you were going to... Well, yeah, yeah, the thing that you were kind of talking about, Inuyash, about, like, uh, there's... Yeah, there's certain cultures or uh, sales tactics, really, that, like, I, are just poison to me, and I just try to avoid yeah. them. Like, I know any time uh, there's, like, a... What is it? A... Um, what are, the, what are those, like, really scammy things where you share a house for a certain number of weeks? Sure. Yeah, timeshare. Like, how they get people, and I watched my parents get, like, fooled like this as a kid, um, is that they're, like, okay, we'll give you, like, basically a highly discounted or, like, basically free vacation at, like, this house in Florida, and then you're just going to have to listen to a timeshare pitch, but you can say no. Yeah. You can't say no. <laughs> like, they, like are very skilled at selling people timeshares and using all of the uh, manipulative or persuasive tactics that work on people because we do have psychologies and have like d- just had like built these kind of cultural institutions of defaulting to truth. It's nice. This is another good time to plug uh, Robert Cialdini's Influence Science and Practice yeah. as well as some good anecdotes on the uh, fun- or what did they call it? Personal Finance subreddit. Yeah. Just jump there. I think there's some on the sidebar about timeshares, but you can also just search around for it, and people will share their experiences of like how skilled these hucksters are. And they, I, I, I could go on at length, but it, it is, uh, it's advanced level um, shysting. Let's put it that way. So I actually used one of these things uh, because I already knew about all this terrible, awful stuff that they do, right? <laughs> And Wait, you used a, a, a timeshare vacation? Yeah, a timeshare vacation. I saved several hundred dollars, <laughs> and I just like went in with no matter what they say, no matter what they do, as soon as the two hours are up, I'm walking out. And I basically tuned out entirely while he was talking, and after the two hours was up, I walked out, and that was it. <laughs> and it uh-huh. Then I guess you didn't get a very skilled one. Uh, maybe, maybe that was it. I, I think a large part well, of it is no. if you just you know think of this person as a literal incarnation of the devil – and <laughs> you, you, signing anything with them is akin to signing over your soul. It's much easier just to be like, peace out, thanks for the vacation, homie. Well, they, the, the ones that tricked my parents didn't just, uh, like, they, they did the thing of, like, make, making them make a promise, making them make another promise, like, uh, I don't know. They used basically all of the techniques that Chaldini talks oh, about. God. And, like, I watched, like, my parents, you know, go in saying, definitely no matter what, we're going to just say no. And they turn they turn them against each other like oh. <laughs> they like what? did a bunch of like they had staff that was like being incredibly nice to children <laughs> in order to like turn the kids to their side. Ah, I went without kids. That helped. I also skipped one of the meetings entirely. I was like, eh, whatever. I think I only actually got a half hour of pitch because then uh, there was supposed to be a second one or something, and I just didn't go right. to that. Well, yeah, they kept escalating the pitches where they would, like, offer a free service and then say that you also, like, you know, the caveat is you have to listen to a five-minute pitch, but it was like, hey, we'll give you a free boat ride, but you got to listen to this five-minute pitch, but, like, you know, you and your family can get on here. And okay. So did your parents actually end up losing money on the uh, timeshare? They bought a timeshare, and I think they might still have it, <laughs> or at least they, they kept it for years, like, uh, over 10 years at least, and never used oh, it. Oh, yeah, see, the never using it is a problem. Well, that, that was the yeah the thing I was about to bring up, which was that they kept adding more stuff that made it seem like this incredibly good deal that like was too good to be true, and it actually was. A lot of it was you get this thing if you do this trivial inconvenience in order to get it, and we can give you this other thing for free, but you have to do this other trivial inconvenience where it was like we could have had these like 
basically free vacations once a year if we had been willing to do a bunch of trivial inconveniences, which nobody does. Mm. I believe there's a blog post about beware trivial inconveniences. Yeah, should probably put a link to that, too. So, we believe people way too much. Yes. Although, generally, it works out. Yeah, it's a good thing. So, the next sort of bias that he talks about is transparency. He talks about the show Friends and about how if you're watching Friends, you can actually turn off the sound and usually still follow the plot. Because the actors are just very good at projecting with their body language and facial expressions, what they're feeling, uh, how you know when they're interacting with each other, you can tell if they're in love or sad or furious. Um, pretty good acting. But you're still left at the question of why Ross, the largest friend, <laughs> simply doesn't just eat the smaller friends. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't actually watched it, so I have to love this part. Uh, there was this psychological study that they did where they got a bunch of participants to... Um, they, they go down this long hallway into a dark room, and then they have to listen to a short story by Franz Kafka. And then you step out of the room, and while you're in the room, a team of people uh, altered the space that you walked in and completely changed the hallway. Oh. They say it was just this normal blank hallway, and then when you come out, it's got bright green walls, a really, like bright overhead lights above a red chair... Sitting in the chair, staring at you like something out of a horror movie is your best friend. So they got these people's friends to coordinate with this whole thing. Cool. They recorded their reactions. There was about 60 test subjects. They did pre-record their hypothesis that people were going to look surprised in particular ways. But only 5% of the participants showed the classic wide eyes, jaw drop, raised eyebrows. Those those three facial expressions, only only 5% of people did those. And then only 17% of people did two of them. <laughs> Most of them showed nothing clearly identifiable as surprise at all. So the conclusion of that is that we have kind of a folk psychology that things like friends or novels draw from, you know, where they describe his eyes went wide and his mouth dropped open. Oh. This is not what people actually do. Okay. <laughs> so the thing is, people have this idea that you can read people's faces, and it's actually not true. Well, were those people not surprised? They were they were very surprised. I mean, they gave them an interview after the fact, and they were like, "Yeah, Jesus Christ, you scared the shit out of me." But okay. Look scared or look surprised. Okay. So yeah, there's this other quote. Uh, we think we can easily see into the hearts of others based on the flimsiest of clues. That's kind of going back to um, Chamberlain and Hitler, where by talking with somebody, by like having a conversation, and by looking at their face, their their expressions, their body language, people think that you can read people. Oh, as a personal anecdote, this is a great way to get over stage fright, and it's what helped me. No one can tell if you're faking. Like, you just go up <laughs> and you say the things, and you, like, you know, try to smile, and nobody knows that you're secretly fucking terrified and have no idea what's going on. And, I mean, that that even works, like, just with talking with people in general. It helped me overcome social anxiety, too. It was like... Yeah, nobody knows yeah. that I'm full of shit and I'm terrified to be here right now. And it's it's true. No one really pays that much attention. Or I guess even if they yeah. do pay attention, they can't tell from your body language. I found that to be the case, too. Like, uh, the, the whole fake it till you make it thing, like, really works with social anxiety. Mm -hmm. If you just keep going to parties and pretend you're having a great time, eventually you'll start having a great time at parties. <laughs> <laughs> like, the first few times you might be having a panic attack the entire time and go home and yeah. cry. <laughs> but no one can tell. I, I'm in this picture. Yeah, I know. Like, I, I'm actually um, currently like working on a 
essay or book or something about um, how I learned to do social skills. Cool. There's like advice that I've had a hard time giving to people or things like that, where it sounds like a very cruel thing to say to somebody that like, yeah, you need to just do it anyway. <laughs> I've had, I've encountered a lot of pushback from people when they're like, but you're so good at talking to people and I, I just suck at it. And then like, I was, I was worse than you. <laughs> Not Ago. And I'm like, literally, the thing that you do is you just keep pretending you're good at it, and then you like start being read as being good at it. I mean, if enough people tell you you're good at talking to them, maybe that means you're actually good at talking to them, though. I'm good at faking being good at talking to people, but <laughs> is like, there a difference if they can't tell? No, I mean, yeah, it's kind of weird Turing test stuff, I guess. It's like, like. Saying, I'm really good at faking being able to lift heavy things. I always manage to <laughs> lift them, even though it's all faking. Yeah, that 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 might be an actual example of having faked it until you made it and now you've actually made it right yeah to some extent i mean there's something i still find social interactions to be really difficult uh it feels like and maybe everybody finds them to be difficult i'm not i don't think so though i think some people do find them to be natural and intuitive and comfortable i really enjoy them but i find them to be very energy intensive i need to rest after exactly yeah as an introvert i need to decomp a lot more than i do Uh, i want to talk about amanda knox too this was another case of misjudging someone. The bias that he called being mismatched. Okay. And it's related to the previous one, transparency. In 2007, a British student, Meredith Ketcher, Kircher, was murdered by a local criminal, Rudy Guid. The case against Guid was damning. He had his DNA everywhere. Like, But um, for a very long time, the media followed, uh, suspected her classmate, Amanda Knox. She was the one who found her body, called the police, and then when they showed up, she behaved weirdly. And the police officer had this weird fetish or something going on where he like, was really trying to convince everybody that, like, obviously, Knox was interested in drug-fueled dangerous sex games that led to the murder of this student. Huh. <laughs> or, like, I think the police officer had, like, made this kind of claim about people before like he seemed just really obsessed with trying to prove that people were involved in drug-filled sex games all the okay. time <laughs> but um she acted guilty when the police showed up and in like subsequent trials and guilty in scare quotes uh so her friends reported that while everybody else was crying Knox didn't cry she was like making out with her boyfriend she looked happy when somebody said i hope she didn't suffer Knox was like, what do you think? They cut her throat. She fucking bled to death. Of course she suffered, which seemed like a horrifying, shocking thing to, for everyone to say. I, I'm sorry. Is it is it bad if someone says a true thing? Apparently. I, I had this exact same thing happen to me. Well, not You didn't, you didn't go to court and <laughs> almost go to jail. Well, yeah. yeah. The thing is, uh, based on the descriptions of Amanda Knox, uh, I read her as being maybe on the uh, autism spectrum. So the thing that happened to me when I was a kid... One of my sister's friends died uh, in high school. He fell asleep at the wheel and hit a tree. And when I heard that, I said, what a stupid way to die. Mm. And I said it angrily because what I what I was trying to express was get more rest. What an like what, what an unfair way to die or like what a terrible, you know, oh, okay. like not not stupid people die this way. Yeah. Yeah. But because I said a thing that wasn't one of the scripts that you're supposed to say to grieving people, then. My sister thought that I was being incredibly like rude and callous and saying that her friend was stupid. <laughs> I don't know if she's ever actually like forgiven me, but I've, I've made the same mistake a lot of times. Of uh, there are things that you're like supposed to. There, there's a way you're supposed to act, 
I never knew how to do these things. I would kind of like copy the people around me, but I always felt like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm not doing gratitude, right? How do you do gratitude? Like a relative gives you a gift. I'm like, oh my God, what do I do? How do I, how do I do the correct gratitude thing? So they know that I'm actually grateful. (laughs) They went um, back in this chapter also to the study of the students who were asked to cheat. They had people do the video interviews later. So there was the girl that they nicknamed Nervous Nelly, who got really defensive when the interviewer was asking her if she cheated. Uh, she was fidgeting. She repeated herself over and over again, halted mid-sentence, was clearly agitated. Everybody was convinced she was lying, but she was telling the truth. She was just nervous. Yeah. <laughs> Being mismatched is when somebody... Well, we think that liars will show agitation, but Gladwell says plenty of liars will look you in the eye and lie right to your face. And plenty of honest people will look like they're lying. Did we talk about this? I'm sure we did about when we did the last episode. I've been in a situation where I've been assumed to be lying when I'm not. Yeah, okay, we covered this. Um, and it, it's a it's a really weird situation to be in. Yeah, like I think the thing that you described was a uh, kind of giving long explanations where like. To you, it feels, I think, maybe from the inside, and I think I've done this before, too, like, they're not going to believe me unless I give them lots of details. Like, oh, no, I I obviously couldn't have sent that text that day. You know, first, let me go back to this morning. I was driving my car, and you can ask, but, but, like, this looks defensive to people. (laughs) Right. And and I think part of that actually isn't in honed or honed in instinct on mine for being defensive. In elementary school, I'd get in trouble all the time because I was an annoying student to have if you're an elementary school teacher. Um, Like, I would ask a lot of questions, and I think... They interpreted that as, like, me trying to make them look stupid. Doing dominance things to your teacher. Yeah, well, but it wasn't even dominance. It would be just more like, actually, I'm curious about that. And then, like, they would interpret it, yeah, they would interpret it as a dominance challenge, but I wasn't meaning it that way. I just asked for clarification or something, and they couldn't give it. That's what that says critics article's about. I know. They almost, they could have ruined me. Um, But anyway, so then, yeah, then they would look for shit to get me in trouble for. So I'd, I'd always have a good explanation, because, like, there always was an explanation for why I did something. And then I feel like I have to get the entire thing, and that sort of carried over to adulthood, and it is damn annoying for everybody. <laughs> I find it charming. Well, I'm working on it, so that charm will be going away. No! Hopefully. Steven's one good personality trait. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> he has many good personality traits. Next chapter. I concur that Steven has many good personality traits. I waved my hand dismissively. Next chapter was about alcohol. I think I talked about oh, this yeah, one. I, did. I don't know if I covered as much of. I talked about the the Bolivian uh, village. Yeah. I don't know if I talked about the sexual assault. Um, a lot of like one one whole chapter and a half were about sexual no, assault. No, not. Tell us about the sexual. Well, <laughs> this is also related, yeah, to all, it, kind of the overarching thesis of the book. Are, they're all interconnected, but um, the myopia um, effect that alcohol has, the fact that we already have a very hard time communicating with each other because of these other things going on, default truth, transparency being mismatched. When you add alcohol, then what it does is it causes people to get hyper-focused on short-term goals and wants and to dismiss things that are outside of their current field of view. So long-term goals, uh, (laughs) caring about consequences. So a lot of people's first drinking when they're, developing brains uh, happens in college and at parties when your brain hasn't fully developed in like the you know types of relational and communicative ways that are very important as well Gladwell says uh, consent between people who've just met is rarely entirely clear even before alcohol enters the mix and he cites a 2015 uh, Washington Post poll 
which asked students what constituted consent for your sexual activity. 47% believed that someone taking off their own clothes constitutes consent. 18% believed not saying no constitutes consent. (laughs) There was no clear consensus on any indicator of consent among any of the participants. I don't don't want to derail, but only 18% thought that not saying no constituted consent. That's 18% more than I would like. You need to do more than just Uh, not say no. You can intimidate someone into staying quiet. Yep. Well, okay, yeah, I guess I was picturing under, like, an ordinary circumstance, you know, like, uh, where where there's clearly positive signals and you're you're reading the room right, and it's like, okay, cool, they're into this. You can't read the room. Um, a lot of assigned female people are raised to never say no <laughs> and be people-pleasing, and then um, a lot of male assigned people are raised to be assertive and aggressive and take what they want. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I don't have a, a long dating history, but I guess I most of the women I met were like... Thing is, you can more strongly, strongly, person, strongly uh, positioned, I guess, to say like what they thought about things, and they could just be like, "No, I'm good." And especially like saying no could also be like a response to like, "Do you want to keep doing this?" And if the answer, if they say yes, then it's like, "What else are you supposed to infer?" So like, then in that sense, they not they didn't say no. So if a yes isn't enough, uh, I guess this is this is derailing. It just I find that confusing. I, yeah, I feel like a lot of people just have these list of rules and find ways to try to game them as opposed to actually actively wanting to make sure that their partner wants to do this and is having a good time, too. And it's oh, a sure. lot, yeah. it's a lot I mean, easier not, once I, you I, know somebody to be able to read them because you know them. That's the whole point of it. But uh, it's when you've just first met someone, you can do a lot of things like, oh, well, you know, technically she went along with everything I did and stuff. And uh, yeah. it's... It's it has to be a priority if it's someone you've just met, like a very strong priority of yours to make sure that they're absolutely wanting to do this. Yeah, and that should be like both or all parties' responsibility because I, I the most common thing is the you know female assigned person getting like be, being people pleasing, the male assigned person being the assertive one. But in my case, I've been on both sides of this, and it's just you don't even have to bring. Uh, acting in bad faith into it. Both people can be acting in good faith on their part, and you get a situation where one partner says that they've been raped by the other, and the other says, I, we, I've tried as hard as I knew how to, to, like, infer consent. And so this, this is a false allegation. We both consented at the time. From both of their perspectives, like, you don't know their history. The one person maybe uh, just, like, had PTSD, got triggered by the interaction, bringing up old PTSD, and then basically wearing a dissociative fugue the entire time it was happening. Or, you know, alcohol can be in the mix and the person can totally forget about who the fuck they are, what's going on, <laughs> what they're I, supposed to be doing tomorrow. I remember I had a female psychology teacher in college explaining about how women can consent when there's alcohol in their system. And I raised my hand and asked, like, what about men with alcohol in their system? And she, woman, explained to me that my dick wouldn't work if I was so drunk that I couldn't consent. <laughs> okay, that's how that works. And- and so I, I didn't push back and say, I've been so drunk that I couldn't shower, but still able to get an erection because I was in a room full of 30 people. Who was the politician that said that women who got raped couldn't get pregnant because the woman's fallopian tubes would right, close right. or something? The woman's body has ways of shutting that down if it's a legitimate rape was the, the quote. Right. Yeah. Are yeah. people bad at biology? Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm very much, obviously, a... a advocate of, of getting consent and stuff i guess i'm just confused by that so like if 
if they say yes and they act enthusiastic the whole time, that's not enough. I I think um, at that point it probably so like, is. If they if they're enthusiastic yeah. the whole time, then yeah. Okay, see that's that's what I was misunderstanding. I thought that that you're saying like okay, well if they if it triggered PTSD or something, but they never said anything. No, I mean it's but, still it's their responsibility to like uh, you know, but there's there's issues like that where neither person is at fault. I think there's a complicated. Uh, they both could have tried harder to communicate and understand each other, but it, it, that's both of their responsibility. Okay, see, I thought that you were saying because like a lot of assigned uh, assigned female people are told not to whatever uh, explain themselves or something. Then it's like, well, that's not my fault. If I asked and they said yes and like they they seemed into it, um, like it's it, like unless you're going to have a, a discussion with somebody you just met who you think might want to hook up with you and be like, all right, now let's talk rape allegations <laughs> and consent before we go home. Like that's a super off-putting conversation, yeah. right? No one wants no. to do that. Unfortunately, yeah, that's what a lot of people kind of recommend now. And yeah, I'm glad I'm married. In an ideal world, they could teach like here's like consent rules in school from a very early age, so everybody has a like cultural understanding of here's how you communicate around this. But basically, what this uh, Washington Post poll showed is that people have like whatever idea their culture, their friends, their own minds came up with as far as this is what constitutes consent is what they think constitutes consent. It's a, a thing we don't talk about as a society. Like I actually have my sex ed uh, or the contraception specifically part of my sex ed curriculum ripped out of the books and censored by wow. my school because that if, if kids learned about contraception, then they would have sex. No. <laughs> Because the, oh, there wouldn't be consequences. <laughs> how how terrible if the only consequence to sex was that everyone has a great time, that they go and have sex. Yeah. We can't be having that. But no, to Stephen's point, like if someone is enthusiastically into it, it's, in my opinion, totally fine. It's just a matter of, you know, actually being sure that they are enthusiastic and into it. Like every time you escalate a little bit, then they escalate a little bit back. You can't be the only one pushing forward every time because that's a clear sign that they might not be as into this as you are. Yeah, and like I don't know. The, Is it clear I never had a lot of hookups? <laughs> somebody's a bad person for not like grilling their partner in regard to consent either. I mean, like you should try to establish it, but like I mean, I would say if if two two people, I don't know, if Joe and Sally uh, had sex and then Sally had like a was in a dissociative fugue the entire time, and but what was just saying yes, yes, yes to everything to, to get it to stop. I think it's Sally's fault for not communicating. Yeah. Or at least, I don't like to say that it's somebody's fault. It's unfortunate, but I don't think that Sally could bring Joe to court and say that right. he had raped her. At some point, you hooked up with Rachel for the first time, right? Like, you guys didn't just start out having <laughs> yeah. already had sex. So. Yeah. Um, there, I feel like if I was misinterpreting the signals, I could, under no reasonable or even unreasonable circumstance, have been blocked. Okay. <laughs> um, I guess this is this is more for like, I mean, the, the, it's, like I said, it's a, it's a whole own topic. I I'll leave it at that. God, I've not been able to stop touching my face. Okay, I've got a question about that because my thinking is I haven't left the house in yeah, a week. Yeah, you're fine. It, yeah, so like nothing in the house has has germs on it. So I've been touching. I'll touch my face like mad because my hands are clean. So is everything in my house. It's like if you go out. Yeah. Yeah. If nobody comes over and if you and Rachel have been quarantined together and neither of you have developed symptoms, then your house Isn't is Rachel touching a lot of like, decaying corpses? Uh, not usually. <laughs> um, even even under yeah, so she she is still working. She has she went out like maybe three times last week. Um, they're finally catching on. It took them a while, 
that and it helped with the fact that nursing homes aren't letting people in um, so she can't go visit patients at nursing homes anyway uh, she went to go visit one guy last week and had to swing by the office to get a mask and a gown to wear and just told to reuse both of them um, which just you know is uh, I roll at the whole thing about the medical establishment doesn't have enough fucking gloves and masks for everybody because everyone's buying these things in bulk. Now, don't get me wrong. I, ha I have gloves, uh, disposable gloves that I bought a year ago to prepare, like, raw meat with. And if I wanted to wear those to Safeway, go nuts. I have a couple of germ masks because, uh, you know, when I go to the doctor for random stuff, if they have them in the waiting room, I'd grab one just to have around. You know, like, if I wanted to, like, I'll wear them on planes and stuff if I feel like it, right? Right. Yeah, those masks are more for protecting you and, like, or for protecting those around you when you are sick and you have to go totally. outside. I, I sort of figured, like, if they keep germs inside the mask, they'll keep germs out. But I'll, I'll take the I'll take the word for it that um, they probably don't do much uh, if people say so. It doesn't make sense to me how it keeps things in but not out. I'm, but I'm not a scientist, so I'll just take the scientist's word on it. That said, I, you know, I'd grab them when they made me feel better, but I'd grab one or two when they weren't scarce. The people now who will walk into the ER and, like, shove them all in their purse or in their coat pockets or something blows my people fucking mind. People do that? Yeah, there aren't, like, it. even, like, hospitals and medical... Uh, um, They're mentioning them at my hospital. Yeah, medical professionals don't have enough of them to distribute. Well, anything. no, I've heard that, but, like, people are stealing from ERs? I can only assume so. Otherwise, where else are they all going? Well, maybe they're using them all and they can't restock because of the shortage. Oh, that's definitely part of it. Um, but I, I know that other people are stockpiling, yeah. like stuff that's not theirs. That's the thing is like I understand the impulse to protect yourself. I saw I'll find a great video um, and make a note of it. There was just this great little breakdown that someone shared on one of the work channels on Slack um, of a of a dad who crunched the math for like you know all right so this you know I saw someone at Costco buy four jumbo rolls of toilet paper. Here's how many shits per day they'd have to take if they were going to burn through all of that in two weeks. And it was like 120 or something per person uh, to burn through all that toilet paper, assuming 20 squares of shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then it just has him looking at the camera and he's like, calm down, everybody. <laughs> so the next few chapters were the ones I was having a hard time summarizing last time. And uh, it was talking about um, the Sandra Bland case, the woman who was pulled over for mm, yeah. failing to signal. This ended in her committing suicide in jail. The author frames this as defaulting to truth at the wrong time and also brings in the, yeah, um, they're talking about before that chapter, the policing uh, that was developed to work in high crime areas, the Kansas City policing, which doesn't make any sense in low crime areas because it's a really aggressive tactic. But cops, because it worked really well, decided that they were going to just, oh, Kansas City policing everywhere. <laughs> This led to cases like uh, people like Sandra Bland being pulled over. Because in high crime areas, they're expecting you pull somebody over for anything, but what you're really looking for is drugs or guns. In Sandra Bland's case, she just had, like, there were some things that didn't really make sense that would, like, trigger somebody. Like, aha, this, I'm going to pull this person over. They have license plates from a different state. Oh, they're behaving in a way that, and again, that's the uh, <laughs> starting to bring in a bunch of the examples. Behaving in a way that looks suspicious, quote-unquote. The cop not understanding that, like, Sandra Bland had a bunch of, she, you know, was depressed and suicidal, had a bunch of really high-stress things going on in her life at the time, and responded in a way that looked to him like aggressiveness, uh, failure to cooperate, you know, it was just making him more suspicious that this uh, this person has something to hide, this person's acting like a criminal. So there's the, the mismatch. And 
Yeah, so th- this officer, uh, Encina, Encina, assumed that he could interpret character from demeanor. Uh, is, it, is it just me, or is it kind of fucked up that they look for drugs and guns, which are things that people should be legally able to own anyway? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they do tend to be correlated with crime, though, so kind of from a policing standpoint, generally if you pull somebody over who's got a bunch of drugs and guns, they're not doing it for your self-defense and, like, their own home, like, That's fun true. recreation time. But, yeah, I mean, I agree. Um, yeah, these kinds of, I don't know, this makes, there's a court case he talks about in the beginning of the book, too. There's this case. Um, all the examples kind of come together and start to show how these biases that, that uh, make us really bad at talking to strangers are a big problem. <laughs> a lot of the institutions that we have are not, like, correctly informed about them, like court. They had a court case, or no, it was a, a bail judge compete against an AI. Um, so the bail judge was reviewing cases face-to-face with people, seeing their own testimony, uh, the witnesses, watching their body language. You know, like, they should have had the advantage but, yeah, they, they compared their uh, decisions about who would be safe to let out on bail and who was going to commit crimes again. Um, they ran humans against uh, AI that could just read the trial papers, the, the bail case, and the AI outperformed the humans. The AI outperformed the humans, like, in a, a majority of cases where you would want, like, you would hope that humans would be good at these things. Like, they had um, a variety of people take these kinds of tests not just the bail judges, although those are the professionals, but like, you know, um, CIA operatives. <laughs> and humans always perform worse than the AI. Worse at what yeah. criterion? Which which people should go to jail versus which should be left out on bail. And then after the fact, which people committed crime again and were arrested again, or which ones were safe. See, I, I absolutely believe this is the case because I just think AIs are better than humans at this sort of thing because all they look at is the data. But every time something like this gets brought up, mm-hmm. people tend to go with, well, the data that the AI are trained on is all flawed because we incarcerate black people more or we incarcerate people from this socioeconomic area more than they should be incarcerated, whatever. Like, I, I always hear these things, but then, like, on the actual objective metric, they did better with classifying people. But, like, the, what they're talking about as far as, like, blacks getting incarcerated more is that that's happening because of because of human error because of these biases so like it's not the ai's fault (laughs) no it's not but they keep saying that like the ai's trained on worse data but apparently the ai did a better job than than the humans even at predicting who would recommit crimes yeah the thing is that like they're like oh that you know these people are incarcerated because of bias and i'm like yeah but the people who are competing against the AI are also biased. Like, why do you think that a human is going to be better at, like, reviewing the case than an AI based on that, you know? A human is going to be biased, especially a human court system who, like, arrested somebody wrongfully in the first place. And apparently the AI is biased less because it gets answers better more often. Yep. Answers right more often. Yeah, and it, that's even, even as you pointed out, working with this flawed data. Like, there, it, the AI was reading the court case, or the, the bail case that had been written by a human. This is sort of an aside, but that does raise the question. I wonder, like, if I was in that situation as a uh, as a defendant, like, I feel like I'd want to make my case with people, not have some robot black box determine my fate. That, that's purely an emotional appeal, but that I wonder about that for myself. Like, I I don't I don't know if I'd want a robot determining my fate. I'd want to be able to like talk to a judge or to people 
and say, no, look, here's what here's what I was thinking. Here's what was going on. Yeah, I mean, that that's the same instinct that's driving people to continue to have court cases um, reviewed by humans, though. Yeah, no, I'm just saying it, I feel like it's an understandable impulse. I think it might be good to be able to have humans looped in to be able to veto the computer. Like, no, this is obviously a case of the computer making an error. But yeah. in general, I don't know. Like, what you're saying is you think you'd be more convincing to a human who is easier to fool than to an AI, right? Um, I, I don't mean like if I was a bad criminal. I meant that like if things look bad, but like, no, look, there's all these exonerating circumstances that make it clear that I'm not the kind of person who should spend five years in jail or something. Or like it sounds like you're assuming a human will be able to read you better, <laughs> but they won't. Well, I guess. I, I When you say they read the court documents, I guess I'm not sure... Is that including the ones where I'm sitting there talking to the judge? Um, what, uh, the judges have access to the documents, and then they also get to talk to the person and review, like, oversee the court case, um, whereas the computers only are reading the, the document. Hmm. Honestly, you have all the markers going in your favor. You have like a good middle-class job. You live in a decent middle-class area. We're talking about the royal You're me. white. You don't... Like, if, if, the, the royal I, right? No, no, no. I mean you specifically. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not worried about me specifically. Have... I'm not committing crimes. I mean, like, if I if I if I got pulled over for, uh, I don't know. No, but that, but that's what I'm saying. If you were to have gotten pulled over for something and you are innocent of it, you have all the markers that the AI would look like. The only strike you have against you is that you're male. Like, you would be better off being a woman in this case. But uh, <laughs> it, it, all the other things are like, yeah, this person is a legit member of society. He's got no record. The AI would totally give you bail. Whereas if you were to go up against a human, that human might be like, huh, this guy's kind of shifty looking. He keeps acting like he's got a pain in his lower back, which is just a clear sign of criminality. And like, I think you'd have a better chance with the AI than otherwise. I, I, maybe me specifically, I guess I was, I was thinking more generally, like if I, if I wasn't me, but I was anybody, I, 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 well, I understand that the, the AI is better at it and that's probably the way things should go. I totally get the impulse of saying, no, I want to be able to like plead my case to another human who I know understands people. I get it too, but I don't think that like intellectually, I think that if I were arrested, I would want an AI to review my case rather than a human because I know that I mismatched the way Amanda Knox was. Yeah, I, I don't perform things well enough to like fool people. I'm on the spectrum. I mean, I'm thinking that I'm mad because I uh, will default to a toneless or blank expression when I'm stressed. Most people would. You know, I do it. It'd be a lottery of are you lucky enough to get the young judge who is not jaded and cynical yet, or the judge that has been going over bail cases for ten years and has been lied to so many times that he just assumes everyone's lying to him. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I'm not saying I necessarily want this. I understand the wisdom of it, but I can understand the impulse of somebody saying, "You mean I don't get to talk to a human to make this decision for me?" And you I know, can I, too. I mean, I, I guess, I, in, granted, we shouldn't constrain our our judgments on what makes sense or what what people ought to do by what can be explained to the average person. I just think it's a a reasonable impulse to have, whether or not it's the optimal one, which it probably is, to have a, at least some level of of output that needs to be considered from uh, a, a black box AI that, you know, the judges and the clerks don't understand, right? Uh, that kind of uh, reminds me of something I was going to say earlier about going all the way back to airplanes and terrorism. There's an extent to which the heightened security made sense from, like, making the people that were using the airlines feel safer at, or, like, making people feel like something was being done, uh, keeping public peace, I guess. So I can kind of see that, too, where 
if we did, you know, mandate tomorrow that all court cases are going to be reviewed by AIs instead of humans, people would panic. I'm just trying to think, even if I was like a young black man, late teens, early 20s, you know, often targeted, would I rather take my chances with the AI who's just going to look at the rap sheet or like with the judge who's probably going to look at what clothes I'm wearing and what my hairstyle is and make assumptions based off that too? Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. Like, I don't know, maybe maybe this isn't the way I feel if I was in that position, but... Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm also... Um... Uh, as a, another thing that I'm studying right now is borderline personality disorder and personality disorders in general. And a bunch of, um, I'm finding a lot of very, I guess, disheartening data showing that a lot of court cases are resolved due to emotions. Like people are more swayed by people who make emotional appeals than they are by facts or reason. Yeah. Like there's a lot of, um, you know, the worst examples are people with like, narcissistic or antisocial personality disorder who are able to lie to people's faces and they're like very abused spouse trying to like beg to like let them take custody of the children but the other you know they're, they're just not like coherent they're crying they're like and then the other person is just like able to be incredibly charismatic and make whatever point they like know are going to impress the judges but mm. like that that's the kind of thing too that the ai would be able to fix because there's a lot of cases of people who are abusive getting custody of the children over and over again because they're able to convince courts with their emotional appeals that they're the innocent victim and the other person or like, you know, that some other circumstances happened. They tend to eventually get found out if they keep going back to the court or if they keep, you know, if they perpetuate abusive behavior, eventually it gets found out. And like, no matter how good they lie, there's going to be a long, but like it takes an overwhelming amount of evidence. Yeah to sway people. That's something, that's a point that Gladwell brings up a bunch of times that we default to truth until we see overwhelming evidence that somebody is lying. And it really should be like, we should have the ability to actually like review evidence (laughs) in these cases. Like uh, I would, would have given custody of the correct parent, like based on just, okay, this person has one past uh, instance of abuse in their history where this other person doesn't, but it gets to the point where they have to have like, abuse the children eight times before the human judges will be like, oh, maybe they have a problem. So instead of talking to strangers, we should have AIs do everything. Or just get better at, like, I, I, my hope would be that these kinds of biases were more known. Same thing, like, the kind of, the thing that I was really happy about with um, pre-registering your hypotheses starting to, like, be a thing that people know about and have been taking point to do. Mm-hmm. Um Man, that was phrased awkwardly. I'm starting to <laughs> we've been going at this for a bit. Um, yeah. We should probably yeah. wrap up here pretty soon. I feel like I think we can pretty much wrap up uh, talking to strangers. All right, give us the wrap up. Humans are out, AIs are in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I'm glad that Gladwell wrote this book and coined these phrases. Uh, I might try to write like a less wrong article summarizing it if someone hasn't already, because I think that. These are new cognitive biases that don't get like looked at or talked about as much where we have ones that kind of concern more like scientific judgments that are well known or points when people are debating. There's two things that kind of occurs to me from thinking about everything you've said about the book. The first is that like the world is a far more lonely place than we would like to think because it turns out we don't actually 
know people all that mu- well. Well, not strangers anyway. Like people that we know maybe, but strangers are more alien and much harder to read than we thought. Yeah. And the other thing that occurs to me is that like this is probably more of a problem for the more neurotypical like I get the feeling that people who are more autistic have always had more of a problem relating to people and understanding strangers. So this is kind of like, yeah, bro, we've been here all along and you just were fooling yourselves into thinking that you could see what other people were doing and how they react and feel. The more I learn about that, the more it does kind of reassure me and I feel like kind of a dick, but um, I guess I've always kind of felt like, yeah, okay. Like neurotypical people can just like have this magic superpower of being able to look at somebody and know what they're feeling. (laughs) (laughs) And instead their magical superpower is self-deception. (laughs) <laughs> the thing is that I I know autistic people, and I think I'm getting to be one of them, who are very, I, I would say, much more skilled than average at um, reading people, at like initiating conversations, so forth and so on, social skills, because they have had to learn it. And when you come at it from without like the software that let, that you know makes you deceive yourself, um, you do actually have to update. <laughs> you have to register your hypotheses, test them, and then like get good at you know. I want to have a stockpile of T-shirts that say, I'm neurotypical, my superpower is self-deception, and just give them out to people sometimes. Just imagining, like, you at a booth somewhere, like some rationalist confession. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's that book. Uh, I still recommend reading it, uh, although I think I... Yeah, the, the summary still gives you um, the points that he brings up, but reading the book and organically going through the examples and finding the ways that like they all started to kind of come together at the end when they got to the Sandra Bland case was pretty, was a good experience for, I think, giving me a deeper, like, conceptual framework of these ideas. Yeah. That's what I think the difference is between reading distillations of books or and, like, reading them in long form. You just get more concrete models. Yep. Uh, yep. So, yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you very much. No, that was him. Uh, yeah, David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell is the book that came before this one. I think that he picks interesting stuff to focus on that other people aren't really talking about. Yeah. So David and Goliath is a subtitled underdogs, misfits in the art of battling giants, people who are disadvantaged in some way, succeeding against people with more resources who are more powerful, little guy winning against big guy. That sounds awesome. I think I should read that. Yeah, it's really good. Very important for overthrowing the man. Pretty much. Cool. All right. Well, um, we should move on. I would say listener feedback, but one of the listener feedbacks we got is that the episodes have been getting really long lately. And also, we've been at this for a while because it took us some time to get set up. So do we want to just go into thanking the patron? I think that's a good idea. I think the next one is Daniel Corner. Yeah. Yes. We appreciate your support, and I never know what to say during the thank you patient parts. <laughs> Daniel Connor, even in hindsight, your contribution is greatly appreciated. Corner, but yeah. Corner, you're right. Daniel Corner. No worries. No, we, we appreciate it. Thank you so much for, for everything you guys do to help keep the lights on around here. And, uh, you know, we say the same thing every time, but that means that doesn't mean it's any less appreciated. And, and it really does make me feel, I don't know about you guys, but it makes me personally feel like I'm valued and my contribution is important and that's just a really nice feeling. It keeps me going sometimes when I, I'm like, do I really want to record this week? And I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of people that like this enough to throw us a buck, so I'm absolutely going to go. And then I'm, I'm always glad I did. Like, I never regret recording these. 
I really enjoy, especially like, although I'm terrible at getting on the Discord ever, but I'm happy that I'm more able to interact with some of the listeners now. And yeah, it's a great feeling to know that people enjoy the stuff that you make. And I agree with what you said, Idiyash, about like, I don't know, an important part of my psychology is like feeling like I'm useful to the world. It's like an important value and goal of mine. Yeah. I feel like shit if I feel like I'm just like, you know, playing video games and sticking around. But like, if I feel like I'm creating things that are helping people that are of value, that are even enjoyable, then I, yeah. One of the things that's done for me too is, um, when we set up a Patreon account, I realized like, oh, okay, people will like financially support small podcasts like this. I immediately went out and supported with a lot more stuff. It's the kind of thing that, you know, has an impact on everyone else too. So I, I try to make, sure that everything that I enjoy, uh, well, not everything that costs too much, but um, the stuff that I enjoy a lot that otherwise doesn't have a ton of money, um, I try to give money to. So, uh, yeah, anyway, if you have the uh, the resources and feel like it, you're welcome to throw us a buck or so a month or however much you want. Um, we have some tiered rewards, but the tiers aren't, like, greatly articulated or thought out. So if there's, like, anything you want for any reasonable amount of money, just throw it our way and we'll strongly consider it or try and do it for you. Um, otherwise you can take a minute or two to review this on iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. Uh, especially if you like it enough to leave five stars, makes it easier to find and, uh, shows people what they're getting into if they read some reviews before they subscribe. So, yeah. And, uh, also you can join the conversation if you like on the discord, which is linked in the show notes. And we do still have a subreddit, which does get some activity. Um, <laughs> we would have read some feedback from it, but we ran out of time. So we'll do that next, next episode. Next week. Next episode. Yeah. Not, not next week. No. Oh. That subreddit, by the way, is the Beijing Conspiracy. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. And see you next time. Bye, everybody. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. It's good talking to you guys. Yeah. Likewise. You too. <laughs>